All right, well, Merry Christmas. We are so glad that you guys are here with us. It's Christmas Eve. Uh, last night we had a Christmas Eve service. We wrestled uh, with whether we should cancel or not. We're glad you guys are here. We didn't know if anybody would be here today. And uh, I told him last night, no matter what happens this weekend, it cannot be as bad as uh, Journey's second Christmas. So for you guys that are new, uh, we're a little over 10 years old. And about 10 years ago, uh, we decided for the first time ever to hold two services on Christmas. And so we were super excited. We only had about 50 people in the church at that time. And so uh, the first service comes at 10 o'clock. And there's like 100 people there. It was the first time Journey had ever broke 100 people in attendance. And we're celebrating and we're excited. And as I'm thinking through it, I'm like, oh no, everybody I know was at that service. Like everybody I possibly knew. So we still had another service at 1130. There were two families that showed up. They were both visitors. And... Uh, yeah, and so it was like, and they sat on opposite sides of, of the room, and so it was just like, well, I'm sorry, guys. You guys want to go get some Chinese? And so, uh, so yeah, so we are so glad you guys are here. We know that, that, that people are watching online. It's been a brutal uh, couple of days for everybody, but we're glad you guys are here and staying warm. So Christmas uh, is considered the most wonderful time of the year, um, and it's not necessarily because of what's happening right now or what you're about to experience, but because of what's happening for us um, because the reality is, and we talked about this the first two weeks of the series, is Christmas can be very complicated. Uh, some of us, our worlds right now are flipped upside down. Uh, it is, we are being pulled in a million different directions. Um, we personally, me and my wife, we're busy people. We have not had a free night in like two weeks. Anybody else? And so it's like every night there's a different thing we got to do. Uh, and then it's complicated because you're trying to get presents. And apparently Amazon and Walmart are not delivering presents anymore. And so there's all this complication with having to run out and go buy stuff. And then uh, some of you are dreading today and tomorrow. And the reason you're dreading today and tomorrow is because 364 days a year, uh, you can avoid them. But tomorrow, you can't, right? And so you're going to have to sit down with them, or, or many of you guys, if you have this experience, uh, you know there's a conversation that's going to come up at some point, uh, sitting around a table or in a living room, and you do not want to be there when it does, right? And you know that it's coming. Um, for some of us, this season is hard. Uh, we, we talked about it last night. For some of us, uh, we've lost someone that we loved um, over the past year, and this might be the first year that we're experiencing it without them. And so there's a little bit of dread, or, or maybe uh, for some of us, we, we're losing someone. There, there's a diagnosis, there's a sickness, and, and so we think about this holiday season, and this might be the last one we get with them. And, and so it's really, really tough. And, and then the season itself, we don't even know what it's about anymore. Is it about giving or getting or both? Or apparently, I keep hearing there's a war on Christmas somewhere. I don't know where, but there is. And, and it becomes this really complicated thing. And so what I want to do is tell you guys today, it, it is the most wonderful time of the year, but not because of what we're experiencing right now, but because of what's happened for us. And so last week, we went on a history lesson to lead up to today, and some of you guys love the history lessons, and some of you dread them, but, uh, but we went through a history lesson, and we're going to finish that lesson today, um, because there is this thing that we talked about last week. There is this belief that we have as people um, that whenever we are, or wherever we are, we believe that this is the worst it's ever been. Um, and if you get on Twitter and Facebook and watch the news channels, they'll tell you it's the worst it's ever been. We believe that the world that we live in is dark. There's so much tension in the world politically. There's so much tension um, with, with foreign policy. There's so much tension with the economy. 
And for some people, because we live now, we believe that this is the worst it's ever been. But if you study it, there, there's this pattern that every generation and about every century, um, there's a moment where everybody's believed it's the worst it's ever been. And so it's like this cyclical pattern that we always think, no matter how dark the world has been, that it's the darkest it is right now. And yet, every generation that experiences that, every generation that believes that, they persevere and they continue to go on. And so we said, you know, there's this story that takes place over 2,000 years ago that has persevered as well. And it's crossed generational lines, it's crossed cultural lines to the point that most places in the world, whether they celebrate it or not, if you show them a picture of a nativity, they know what it's about. And so last week we ended the lesson by kind of talking about the thousand years leading up to the moment that we talk about today. And so it's been a thousand years since the reign of David. And David was the mightiest king that Israel had ever um, experienced. He had brought them to prominence. He had brought peace to the land. And so it's been a thousand years. And there's this moment where God's people believes that it's going to continue to be that way. And then David dies. And after David dies, things become a mess. And the kingdom gets torn apart, and then these conquering empires come in one after another, and we walk through all of that, and the 700 years of Israel being conquered by one nation after another. And so the people, God's people, are experiencing pain and heartache and fear. And then on top of all of that, when we pick up the story we're going to pick up today, what you have to understand is there's been 400 years of silence, 400 years where no one has heard a word directly from God. And the people in this moment find themselves under the thumb of another empire, another ruler. And for them, it was as dark and bleak as it had ever been. So in Luke chapter 2, we see this story. At the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was obviously pregnant now. It's not something you're supposed to say, though. Like, they're obviously pregnant now, right? Okay. So what about Rome? So what we discovered last week is that there's these empires that come in and take over God's people. Rome, as we've talked about before, was the most brutal, and this is one of the hardest seasons for the people. Now, there's a term that maybe you heard if you paid attention in history class, and it's called Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. And the idea was that there was a period of time that Rome actually brought peace to the world. And that's true if you lived in Rome. If you lived anywhere outside of the city walls of Rome, there was no peace to be found. Jesus was born into a conquered land and a conquered people. And it had been a thousand years since the people of God had experienced any type of prominence or peace. And in this particular story, we see the greatest empire, if not one of the greatest, if not the greatest empire that's ever ruled the earth. And it's led by one guy named Caesar. If you studied Rome's empire, it stretched all the way from Great Britain all the way to India. Now, that was most of the developed world at that point. And so the question comes up, how do you actually rule the world? How do you take control of the economic world? How do you take control of all of those trade routes? How do you take control of all of those developed countries and nations? 
And there's one simple answer of how Rome did it all. They had a massive army. They had highly trained soldiers. And it wasn't just the size of the army, it was its ability. Rome has famous battles that you can study in history, and they would go in, and it was domination, shock and awe, massive intimidation, zero tolerance for resistance, military annihilationism, and widespread terrorism. And in college, I had to write a report on Rome's impact on the gospel, and I got focused on one general. His name was Germanicus, who where we actually get the word Germany from. And, and it said that one day he crossed the Rhine River to go into this new territory, and, and he believed that that day, in order for Rome to have victory, that he had to slaughter everybody on the other side of that river, men, women, and children. Over 10,000 people died in that one day by this one general. And if you study Rome's history, this wasn't an isolated story. They did this everywhere that they went. And as they grew their empire, whenever they would take over a territory, they gave you a choice. You can submit to Rome. You become a Rome territory in which they would enslave people. It's estimated that Rome enslaved 5 to 10 million people during their conquest of the world. But if you chose the other route of not to submit to Rome, then they would execute you. It's estimated that Rome killed another 3 to 5 million people people. And they didn't just rule from, a, rule from a government and military perspective. They ruled from an economic perspective as well. It, it, you couldn't do business in the Roman Empire, which again is most of the modern world from Great Britain to India, without first submitting your allegiance to Caesar. In, in the Roman mind, Caesar was a god. In, in fact, in 43 AD, Julius Caesar is decreed a god. They believed that not only him, but every Caesar that followed was an incarnation of of God. One ancient temple that you can see in Rome has a saying on it that says, Caesar was the God who was and is and is to come. Now, if that sounds familiar with to you, that comes out of the book of Revelation. Only in Revelation, it doesn't talk about Caesar being the God who was and is to come. It talks about Jesus. There's even the famous star of Bethlehem that we're all familiar with in the Christmas story. Well, in the ancient world, they did not believe that was the star for, for Jesus. They believed that that was the afterglow of the previous Caesar named Julius ascending to set on his throne over the universe. And that that star was him leaving to go to his throne. That also made, because he was a god, Julius Caesar, that made his son, who is appointed son, Caesar Augustus, they literally believed that he was the son of God. The greeting in the Roman Empire was, Caesar is Lord, do you believe? Glory to Caesar in the highest, do you believe this? And if you study the ancient world, you have to understand, you better have said yes, because you lived and died condemned by the whim of the Caesar and the people who served him. It was a brutal world that the Romans had created. Roman soldiers came up with competitive ways to see who could um, torture people and, and hurt people, but also spread a message. The winning entry in their most famous was crucifixion. They didn't create crucifixion. That wasn't created by the Persians, but they perfected it. One city where Jesus grew up called Nazareth, it's believed that a city right next to it That because they tried to rebel against the local governor, that over 2,000 people were crucified and that their bodies were left on display lining the streets like telephone poles. As a warning, you don't rebel against Rome. There was this famous movie that many of us have seen called Spartacus. You may have thought it was fiction, but it wasn't. 
Spartacus was the leader who rebelled against the local Roman area, and and not only was he eventually caught and killed, but so were 6,000 of the men that followed him. And they were put on display on crosses as a warning to everyone that traveled the roads in and out of Rome, you don't rebel against Rome. The Caesars were known for their viciousness. There was one famous Caesar named Nero who took his enemies and he would dip them in oil and hang them on poles to light his garden parties. And we all love the movie Gladiator, but really it was a form of torture. I'll have two enslaved people fight to the death. And it started just there, but eventually it got worse that the people wanted more and more. So eventually what they did to kind of have this pre-entertainment, they would eventually throw women and children and teenagers in to the pits as lions and tigers would rip them apart. The Caesars, they said in order to kind of make this known what they were and the greatness of their empire, they eventually built a thing called the Colosseum. And it was to honor Caesar and the previous Caesar and all that Rome had built. And this was a place when many people, including early Christians, died ruthlessly. The Romans did things like sawing people in two and pulling people apart, and they did this all for entertainment, but also as a warning, don't rebel against Rome. Such a great Christmas message, huh? Because Caesar is God. He owns you. He owns your house. He owns your wife. He owns your land. He owns your children, your money. It's all his. He owns everything. In order to pay for Caesar's ever-expanding empire, to pay for this huge military that was required in order to continue to conquer the world, it's estimated that his taxes during war times ate up 60 to 80% of your income. And you thought it was bad now. So in order to know how much to tax and how much income you should, you have to know how many people are in your empire. And so from time to time, Caesar would allow the local governors and magistrates to enact censuses in the region so they knew how many people were there and how many people that they could be taxing. Go back to the town to which you were born and register so they know how much to tax people. And that's where our story picks up. This is the world that Jesus was born into. It's not the once upon a time story most of us associate with the little nativity scenes that we put out in our yard or on our mantle. It was a terrorized land controlled by one of the greatest military empires the world has ever seen. And in this setting, Joseph loads up a pregnant Mary and travels to Bethlehem because that's where he was born and had to go register. And he finds it overcrowded with all of the other people who had to go back to Bethlehem to register because of this decree and the census that had been put in place. And because G- Joseph gets there and there was no room in the inn, he takes his pregnant wife to the only place that he could find, and Mary gives birth to Jesus in the manger. Now, there's more to the story. If you look at verse 8, it says this, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Now, an important detail about shepherds in the ancient world, uh, there's all kinds of studies you could do about this, but by the time the Roman Empire comes into existence, most shepherds at this point, these were not adults. These were not even young adults. These were kids. It's believed that the average age of a shepherd might be 8 to 16 years old. So if you have a manger scene and you got a shepherd with a beard on it, you just need to take it off, right? (laughs) These were kids. 
These were kids out in a field at night. It's interesting, the language that's used there for their flocks, um, more than likely it wasn't their flocks. More than likely they were watching the flocks of someone else, someone wealthy, maybe a local governor or a local leader. Maybe these were Rome flocks or more, maybe these were the flocks of the temple that will be slaughtered at the Passover. And so you've got these kids out at night watching these sheep that probably don't even belong to them. Most people believe that at this point, shepherds, they were often enslaved kids from an enslaved family, forced to be out there to watch these sheep. So here's these kids, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified, which I think is an understatement. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will be great joy to all the people. There's, there's a phrase in there that says, don't be afraid. Did you know that fear not, don't be afraid is the most commonly used phrase in the entire Bible? It's not God loves you. It's not your sins are forgiven. It's not it's all going to be okay. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's none of that. Over 367 times the words fear not or don't be afraid is used in the text. And it makes sense because we live in a world where we've created in our minds and in our hearts and maybe in reality a lot of things to be afraid of. And these shepherd boys out in the field, they probably felt the same fear and the same darkness and the same tension that you and I do. They were afraid. And to be honest with you, as I studied this, if I was a shepherd kid out in the middle of a field, in the middle of the Roman Empire, enslaved and forced to do these things, and an angel of the Lord came to me and told me not to be afraid, I got to be honest with you. I probably wouldn't say this out loud because it's an angel, but at least in my head, here's what I'd say. Why not? I am afraid. Have you looked around? Have you seen the world? Have you seen Rome? Have you heard of Caesar? Look over there. there there's a town just right next to us where 2,000 crosses hang. My neighbors are nailed to them. My family members have been murdered. My home doesn't even belong to me anymore. My life is in ruins. I'm poor. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. And you're an angel of God, right? Don't you know that the religion here is completely empty? It's become so politicized and manipulated that it doesn't even mean anything. And it's been 400 years since anybody's heard from God. Hey, angel, don't you know that Caesar is God now? And we have to do what he says. So don't be afraid. Why not? See, sometimes I read the Bible, can I be honest with you? Um, I read things and I want them to be true. But my immediate response is like, see, see maybe you, you hear this and you're like, fear not. Don't be downhearted. Don't give up. Well, I sure feel like it. Why should I not be afraid? Do you see the world that we live in? Do you see the tension that we have? Do you know what's going on in my body? Do you know what's going on in my family right now? And the angel says in verse 11, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth and lying in 
a manger. In verse 10 that we just looked at, there's two things. There's the idea of don't be afraid, but there's also the word good news. The word good news there literally translates the gospel. The gospel is, the good news is that, yes, there's a lot to be afraid of in this world, but the good news is, is that Jesus has stepped into the world. So here's what the angel is saying. I know you're poor. I know you're hungry. I know you're thirsty. I know you're sick and lonely and dying and desperate and in prison. I know you've lost some of your family and some of your stuff. And I know that there's disease and I know that you have anxiety and I know that there's stress and I know there's all this tension in the world, but don't be afraid. And here's why. Even though he claims to be, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is. And the Lord of the universe has stepped down into our world. Or as John famously starts his gospel, the light of the world has stepped down into the darkness. It's an acknowledgement of how dark the world actually is, but also acknowledgement that the light has come. See, this is supposed to be the season of joy. So what is joy? Joy is living with the hope that tomorrow could be better than today. Joy is the idea that everything will be okay, that we will persevere, that there is good news at the end of the story. There's this famous language we use called Emmanuel. We sing songs about it, but it literally means God with us, God among us. And this is the promise that the angel gives these these kids out in the field, that he's with us, that he's experiencing what we're experiencing, that Jesus will actually walk among us, he will walk through us and with us, and he's still doing it today. And because of that, there's good news of great joy, and because of that, we can have hope, even though today is hard. Jesus makes this promise to his disciples right before the cross, and they have no idea that this crucifixion is coming. And he tells them that, that, that in this world you will have trouble, um, but that I have overcome the world, and I'm about to do something. And he even says this. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world laughs. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he gives an illustration that no man in this room or hearing this illustration will ever understand. But every woman that's had a child will. And I have to think that he thinks back to that moment with Mary. And here's what he says. He says, in this world you'll have trouble. And it's like when a woman is pregnant. And when the baby is about to come, there's incredible pain. That's what I've been told at least. right? And it's painful. And it's hard. But then the baby is born. And you forget about all of the pain And all of the things that you've gone through because the child is here and now there's great joy. And he says, so it will be with us that now is the time of pain. But it's not always going to be like that. And then he says, and in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I've overcome the world and you will find peace in me and no one will be able to take it from you. So now is the time of grief. Now is the time when the world is ruled by Caesars. Now is the time that things are really hard. Now is the time that our bodies betray us and fall apart. 
Now is the time of grief. Now is the time of death. But our joy is in the hope that God is with us. And God experienced what he did here on earth through Jesus. And the hope that not only did Jesus come, but that Jesus will come again. And so you have these shepherd boys out in the field. And I always wondered, like, if I'm God and I'm coming to earth and I'm sending my son, um, I think I would do it bigger, right? I think I would go to all of the world leaders. I think I would show up in Caesar's palace and be like, look, here you go, man. This is what's about to happen. But that's not the way it worked. So Jesus shows up to some poor, impoverished shepherd boys living in a cold, dark, occupied world. And the more I study it, the more I make sense because Jesus stepped down to pursue the broken and the hurting and the lost. So why not them? And so if you're in this room or listening, if this year has broke you down, if it's isolated you, if it's left you grieving or fearful or hurt, you don't have to feel like a downer in the midst of all the celebration. You, just like those poor shepherds, can sit at the feet of a Savior who came for you right where you're at. That's how Emmanuel works. It's God with us in the dirt, giving us hope in the face of despair. And Christmas is a reminder of that. But Christmas is also a reminder that Caesar doesn't win. See, there's an ending to this history lesson that we started last week. I'm going to show you a picture here in a second. But before I show it to you, I have to admit that when I show you this picture, it will not have the emotional weight that it should carry because you didn't live in that world. But, but here's the picture of how I know the story ends and that Rome and Caesar doesn't win. And so here's the picture. So this is the famous Colosseum. This is the Colosseum that was built to the glory and the honor of Rome and the Caesars. This is the Colosseum where many people, enslaved people, hurting people, including Christians, lost their life to Rome. And if you go to Rome today and you walk in the main entrance of the Colosseum, that's what you see. And if you would have shown that picture to a first century Jewish person, especially a little shepherd boy out in the field, they wouldn't have believed you. But that's the end of the story. Rome doesn't win. Caesar didn't win. So Christmas is about hope. It's about joy. So let me ask you a question. If there was an angel that would come down to you right now, if there was an angel that could come into your life, that would come at night and hopefully not scare you too much and sit down next to you, what would cause that angel to look at you and say, don't be afraid? What is it in your life that if an angel came to you right now, what would be the thing that it's talking about when it says, don't be afraid? Or here's a question. What is the Caesar that is ruling your life? What is the thing right now that is robbing you of your joy? What is the thing right now that's trying to kill and destroy and enslave you? It's on your mind all the time. For some of us, maybe it's sickness. You or somebody you know is sick. 
and, and you keep going to the doctor and you keep getting the diagnosis and, and in your mind, it's just, it, it's encompassing you. Or as we said, I mean, maybe in the last 12 months, somebody you love died and everybody else is looking forward to the season and you're dreading it. Maybe for some of us, it, it's your work life. It consumes you and you've become a slave to it and you hate it every day when you walk in or you pull in the parking lot and you see their car and you're like, well, this is going to suck, right? What is it? Some of us are so overwhelmed right now financially and we're thinking about the future and, and we don't know if we can pay the bills and we just spent a ton on Christmas and, and we're just stressed about it all the time. Or maybe it's just stress and anxiety because of the world that we live in and you listen to the news and you get on Facebook and you get on Twitter and you see the tension and you see the darkness and it's just overwhelming. What is it that's trying to steal your joy? What is it that you're afraid of? And maybe for some of us, here's where we're at. Every time we look in the mirror, we see a person looking back that's overwhelmed with guilt from their past and what they've done and what they've said and the people they've hurt and where they've been and what they've done. And the weight of that can be crushing. Well, I have a message to you from an angel who showed up and talked to some poor, scared, lonely shepherds and said, listen, I know life is hard. I know that Caesar has filled your life with crosses, but don't be afraid. And I know in this world you will have trouble, but Caesar doesn't win. Herod doesn't win. Do you know what's fascinating to me about the Christmas story is that Caesar Augustus, if you study him, he was a god. Herod was one of the greatest men according to their traditions. I mean, he ruled that area. And here's the thing. The only reason that anybody in this room knows about Herod the Great or Caesar Augustus is because they're footnotes in the story of Jesus. So think about the darkness that engulfed their world and the darkness that engulfs our world. Right before we get to the birth of Jesus, Zechariah, he's in the temple and he's been promised all of these things and he's holding on to these promises in light of the despair that he faces, in light of the fact that for 400 years, nobody's heard from God and yet faithfully he goes to the temple day in and days out and performs his duties. And all of a sudden, there's this message that's given to him and in response to this message of the hope that's gonna come in Jesus, here's what he says and it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says this, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. That is what this story does. That is the hope of Jesus, that no matter the darkness that you face, the light is about to break upon us. So fear not, for behold, we have good news of great joy that will be for all people, including you and me. Today, we celebrate the birth that happened so long ago in the city of David, when our Savior, who is Christ the Lord, was born. Let's pray.